0: Hey guys, this is Mike Wolf, host of the Smart Home Show and the Next Market Podcast. And if you listen to either of those shows, if you're a fan of either of those shows, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast that I'm putting out that I just watched called The Smart Kitchen Show. And uh, yeah, I know there's a Smart Home Show now, there's a Smart Kitchen Show. And I'm just, just, I just, kind of a big believer in simple descriptions for podcasts maybe, Um but, but more seriously, this is a show that I'm really proud of. It's a show that um, really is a storytelling approach uh, where I talk to lots of folks in this in this new area of opportunity, this new area that's growing across a lot of different uh, kind of spaces, people making appliances, some of the innovators, the startups, uh, and my mom. I talked to my mom. She's actually in, in this episode. And so I just wanted to uh, let you guys get a taste of this new show. Um, if you're a fan of uh, the Smart Home show, this should be right up your alley It's about using smart home and IOT technology to really reinvent a specific part of our life that is a pretty big part of all our lives, how we eat, how we cook, how we shop for food. If you're a listener to the next Markup Podcast, first of all, I apologize. It's been a while. Um, I've been pretty busy with stuff. Hopefully, we'll get more episodes out there. The show isn't quite dead. Uh, It's just on hiatus. I appreciate you uh, subscribing still. Uh, this should maybe be an interesting podcast for you because it is uh, much like the Next Barker podcast. It dives deep with some interesting people and, and some interesting issues. And it, it is a storytelling podcast, not just straight straight interviews uh, from bookend to bookend. It's actually trying to weave a little bit of a narrative. So I hope you enjoy this. This is the first episode. The first – it's episode one. There's actually an episode zero. There's two episodes. I thought it'd make, I'd make it really confusing and uh be a little bit off on the numbering. Uh, the episode zero is kind of an introduction to the podcast. It's about 50, 15 minutes and this one's runs about 23 minutes. Uh, if you want to uh, listen to the first one, please subscribe. We're on iTunes now. Just look for the smart kitchen show. I encourage you to do that. Um, as you know, or you may know with podcasts, you know, the early, early on people subscribing really helps get you kind of bumped up in the standings. If you enjoy this, um, I'd encourage you to give us a review. I'd I always appreciate that. If you want to find an online presence or an online home for this, go to smartkitchensummit.com backslash show. That's where I'm putting these. It will also be available also be available on technology.fm. And like I said, it's in iTunes now. I'll, I'll uh, make the rounds, put in other podcast uh, services like uh, like Stitcher and some of the other ones as well over time. You know, hopefully over the next week. So, Hey, folks, thanks for listening. Uh, check this podcast out. Please subscribe if you listen to any of my other podcasts. I'd really appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. When I was a kid, my mom used to have this old Betty Crocker cookbook. You know the kind, the ones with the old dog-eared pages, with illustrations straight from the Mad Men era. Whenever my mom tried something new, it was from this cookbook. I remember trying all different types of sauces, different ways to cook meat. It was probably what most moms and dads who cooked used at the time. The thing about this cookbook is it's such a part of my growing up. I just remember looking at the book, measuring ingredients, and after a couple of hours, when she pulled something from the oven, we had something new and delicious, and sometimes not so delicious, to eat. Sure, she had the box of recipes, too. You know, one of those boxes with the old note cards with hand-scratched recipes, handed down from friends, cut out from newspapers, sent over from relatives. These were the instructions, the learning manuals, if you will, of how to cook back then. We didn't have the Internet. We didn't have YouTube. We didn't have apps to teach us how to cook. And so that's what they used. That's how my mom taught me how to cook. As much as she did. Lately, I've found myself thinking more and more about this cookbook because I've been experimenting with all sorts of different apps and recipe websites and also watching videos and trying to teach myself how to cook. And I thought, how would someone like my mom have differed? How would the recipes and the food that I would have eaten differed if I'd grown up in today's era? <laughs>
1: Do you have a question for a kitchen question?
0: Well I'm gonna ask you about your that old Betsy that old Betty Crocker cookbook you have. Like that I think the yes. one that you had from like when I was growing up, right? Yes. You, do you still use that? Yes. It's like it's I think it's like from the Madman era. It Looks like from the nineteen sixties or something.
1: Yes. I probably got that as a wedding gift. In fact I know I did.
0: So you've had it like forty something years? Yes. Wow, that's a long time.
1: Yes, it is.
0: Would you, would you ever consider changing to like an an iPad with an app on it?
1: You mean seeing my recipes on a a computer?
0: Yeah, or a computer-like device, like an iPad.
1: Well, the thing is, when you cook, okay, things get your fingers get messy and everything, you know, and then you're gonna mess with the computer, so you're gonna get the keyboard. messy and would I really I might if I wanted to live on the edge and be experimental
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> but it would be it would be a big leap for me personally
0: do you do much living on the edge nowadays
1: <laughs> only only when I have to and, and small things are big Okay. (laughs) Small things are big. So, you know, every once in a while I go out of my comfort zone. Yeah.
0: See, I, I don't know if you can actually help someone like me who doesn't know how to cook at all. Like, I'm afraid I, I'm going to be a disaster. Can you, can you actually help someone really bad like me in the kitchen?
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's what's interesting is uh, SideChef um, was kind of created out of necessity for myself <laughs> as well.
0: This is Kevin Yu, the CEO of SideChef. SideChef is one of these cooking apps that I've been playing with. Not only does it help you find recipes through a uh, community... Of folks who've submitted them, but also guide you through the cooking process itself using things like video.
2: Um, it was actually the fact I was trying to create uh, <laughs> this was a couple of years back, but uh, I was trying to create a, um, a, a uh, Valentine's meal and uh, it was uh, ended up being a complete disaster. <laughs> so I'm like, wow, you know, if there was an app or something that could keep track of all of this, this would make it a lot easier on me to be able to do this. Um, and so that's kind of where the idea of a uh, side chef really sparked from.
0: Like many app developers, Kevin and his team do lots of usability testing. They bring people in, try out the app, and see where things could go wrong and see how they can do things better. Only with their testing, they actually have a test kitchen where they bring people in to try and cook using the app. During the course of this usability testing, Kevin and his team found something interesting.
2: And we've gotten a lot of interest from actually um, mothers and their children um, to be able to have children learn how to cook. Um, you know, using the app as well. So it's been interesting because we've recently been doing a lot of test kitchens with with children, and we're finding that they're actually been very quick to to um, adopt into um, the system to be able to cook. I mean, we oftentimes read stories uh, um, in the news about how children now, you know, it's so intuitive for them to swipe left and right, you know, at such an early age, you know, six years old or five years old or even younger, um, you know, with an iPad, and uh, you know, we're finding that it's it's also uh, synonymous with uh, kind of this system for cooking as well, too. So it's been been interesting.
0: So while it might be too late for my mom to pick up an iPad and have that beer cookbook, my children and your children and kids nowadays probably are going to use the iPad and other devices like that as their cookbook, as people like Kevin try to figure out how to best optimize their apps to teach adults and kids
2: how to cook. Again, a lot of this is kind of unexplored territory. We're kind of just going in and, and keeping our, uh, our eyes and ears open um, and, and figuring out how do we build how do we build off of kind of these natural behaviors and then um, kind of uh, figure out, you know, the next step to make it easier for, for them to, to be able to follow a whole entire process? doesn't matter how old they are. doesn't matter how much experience they've had before or not. Um, and then, again, people with experience also have a really good platform to be able to share this kind of knowledge and passion for, for, for others.
0: One of the analogies that Kevin makes with Scichef is to GPS – Much like GPS guides us through the roads and helps us get from one destination to the other, he seems SciChef and apps like it as a way to guide people through the cooking process. But he doesn't think it'll stop there. He actually thinks at some point it'll go beyond apps and the devices themselves will actually connect to the app and help guide you through the cooking process.
2: Yeah, I mean, honestly, like down this whole track, I feel like there's there's a bunch of of cool things that will happen eventually. And uh, having, you know, pots and pans and different pieces of your kitchen almost like light up like this is the next step you know having like a little small you know you know hopefully well done kind of led that that kind of lights up this is this is red or this is green certain parts that 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 um that kind of give you updates or warnings or notifications when things are happening that you or when you need to take action um for cooking and uh, you know this is a first early step in which um, it helps people become more comfortable in the kitchen. It helps people build that kind of uh, user that the, the the behavior of cooking. And then I believe after that we'll also start seeing more opportunities for people to get very creative with their cooking as well. Right now it seems a little bit structured, and I can see how you know that is um, that is one particular type of way of cooking. But I feel like structure is usually what gives people confidence in the beginning, and then from there they can start experimenting, doing a lot of fun things with it, and then sharing out that that um, that experience and that kind of of a passion um, to others. But usually starting out with, I feel like the first point we need we um, need to help people with is, is getting over that first hump who, of people who don't cook. Okay.
0: So maybe I can cook, but not great. Certainly not as good as my mom or my mother-in-law, but I'm trying. And one of the things I've been trying to do is learn from the internet, learn from online videos, learn from different places that have instructions, learn from things like sous vide sites. As I try to cook with my new sous vide cooker, in many ways, what I'm doing by using video and using online to learn, I'm acting a lot like my kids. That's because kids nowadays, it seems like, learn everything from YouTube. But as it turns out, it's not just kids and people like myself who are using YouTube to learn things. It's also professional chefs.
3: And and certainly, like your daughter, like you, one of the first places I turn when I want to learn a new skill or, or learn how something works is YouTube,
0: That's Chris Young, the CEO of Chef Steps. Not only is he CEO of one of the most popular food and cooking education sites on the Internet, he's also, as you might guess, a chef. So he probably doesn't use YouTube to learn how to cook. What he does use it for is to teach people to cook.
3: One of the things that had radically changed uh, in the technology landscape since I started working on Modernist Cuisine, which was my previous gig, was that YouTube had really risen to enormous prominence, and all of a sudden you had a platform for distributing video incredibly affordably, and building an audience uh, of, of, of people around the world. Very, very low cost, very low friction. And that's a huge change because now for the first time as a chef, it was possible for me to share my knowledge in, in a medium that allowed you to do things you couldn't do in words or pictures alone. And that's, that's really a fundamental change in technology that, that allows you to do things that couldn't be done any other way. And so we started out focusing on doing that and creating videos that showed people in our community how to do things that we knew how to do. And it also gave us a feedback loop because there was, there was comments, there was ways for them to ask questions. So it allowed us to calibrate ourselves and, and iterate and learn how to do a more effective job of teaching these skills.
0: Chef Steps has more than just video, but man, they produce some really great cooking videos. And as you heard from Chris, the reason why they use YouTube is because it's a worldwide distribution platform. One that wasn't around before when he was at Modernist Cuisine where He helped co-author probably the most definitive book on food science in the last couple decades. But there's also another reason he uses YouTube. It taps into something more primal.
3: We've always learned by, by being able to watch something in mimicry. I mean, this is the whole reason we have mere neurons is as monkeys, we watch the other monkey do something, and these mere neurons fire in our brain, and they allow us to do something. But historically, there wasn't really a good way to scale that up. And so we reverted to language in the form of words because books were easy to replicate. And, and as printing technology got better and, and with the invention of photography, we were able to repl- replicate picture. But these don't these, – these mediums can't actually convey certain types of information. There's that, – that Chinese proverb that a picture is worth a thousand words is wrong. There's literally, there's literally information that by definition you cannot put into pictures – because you cannot translate it from an aesthetic channel to a semantic channel. It, it doesn't work. You lose information. Um, equally, there's information that we can put in a video that there's no way to put in pictures and words. And that's actually a much better uh, facsimile of being able to actually watch something. So really, YouTube is, is probably the best teaching platform out there because it makes it so easy to put a little bit of video information up there showing people how to do something. So really what ChefSteps has started out doing was, is essentially leveraging that. And, and, and we understand there's value in doing a good job with the video. Um, but YouTube is, is really the ultimate uh, platform for teaching people how to cook.
0: So with that in a video and interactive apps and all these other ways to learn how to cook and show yourself recipes and all these other things, I asked Chris what he thought about the future of the cookbook.
3: Um, cookbooks are actually really fascinating and, and we've in some ways learned this the hard way. Um, I remember the commissioning editor at Bloomsbury in the UK, um, when we were working on the big fat duck cookbook told me that their research showed that on average, uh, a person cooks no more than one recipe from the average cookbook they buy. Um, nobody buys cookbooks to teach themselves to cook. That is where YouTube and apps have tremendous potential, or frankly, all recipes on the web, or Cooks Illustrated, or any number of other places that you like to turn because they provide you recipes that are interesting and compelling to you. But people buy cookbooks for an entirely different reason, as far as I can tell. People buy cookbooks as a physical object of beauty, as a touch point for the brand, as a way of of, of having some connection to something they admire. You know, I don't buy the Big Fat Duck Cookbook. Or even one of uh, David Chang's cookbooks, because I want to cook the recipes. I cook it because I, I you know, I enjoyed the restaurant. It's a way of remembering the experience. It's virtual consumption through the images. And so, you know, over and over, as we talk to publishers, cookbooks continue to do really, really well. The issue is you you actually can't be in the middle. The only kind of cookbooks that do really well are the ones that really rise to the level of being. Deeply compelling as a physical object, almost you know beautiful as a piece of art. Doing something that's merely a collection of recipes without any kind of artistic value to it, um, that's a waste of time. That is going to be eaten alive by, by, by YouTube and uh, blogs and, and everything else. But cookbooks as an object of, uh, of a brand, as an object of experience, um, I actually expect people will still continue to buy them for many, many years to come.
0: So basically what we're looking at is the cookbook itself, the physical cookbook, is becoming a collectible, something that is a touch point for a brand or a chef or a personality, but not necessarily the instruction manual from which you learn how to cook or guide yourself day in and day out on creating food for your family. I remember a few years ago, I had a talk with Seth Godin for a podcast, and I asked him about the future of the printed book. What he said five years ago about the future of the book pretty much echoes what Chris says today, that the paper book itself is going to become a collectible, a thing of beauty, A glorified coffee table book. But if that leaves us with just YouTube videos and app and other interactive services to learn how to cook, can we really become chefs? Can we really become masters of craft? Maybe. Or you can always do what Chris did. Learn how to become a master chef in about four months by walking into what was eventually voted the best restaurant in the world. Do you always go from like wanting to learn something to basically being in the the pro sports equivalent of it (laughs) in that short of time? Uh,
3: I, I look back on it now and go. It was. It was. There was a lot of hubris, but there was also a lot of tenacity. I mean, back then, it's also luck and happenstance. I showed up to this restaurant when, you know, they had no customers and and chefs were were former inmates and would not show up for work. In fact, the story was I had a meal. At the end of my meal, I, I said. I mean, it was a meal that like blew my mind. I'd never seen anything like this. I'd never had food like this. So I walked in the kitchen and said, uh, I will come and work for free for as long as you will have me. And they said, great, can you start next week? I called my girlfriend up back in Seattle at the time. She's my wife now and said, guess what? I'm moving to London next week. Uh, I need to come home and pack my bags. I went back and I worked as an unpaid apprentice for two months. And then uh, a chef didn't show up for work one day. So I was promoted to Garb Chef. And I had an ability to sort of solve cooking problems that was, were very compelling to Heston. And so at the end of the summer, he said, I've always wanted to have a kitchen that just works on new ideas and, and, and inventing what the future of the restaurant could be. With your science background, why don't you move to London and, and build that kitchen up for me? So there was you know, something involved in terms of being the right person at the right time at the right place.
0: Okay. So maybe not all of us can walk into one of the best restaurants in the world and move so quickly up the ladder that in a short amount of time, we open up an experimental kitchen for them. But maybe there is a way that technology can help us become better cooks quickly. So can you see my screen? It's Yeah, I do see it now. And I okay. see myself. <laughs> Perfect.
4: Awesome. Thank you. We use true robotics to emulate human cooking motions to make food. Can you see that?
0: Yeah. All right, that's Timothy Chin, the CEO of Serenity, and what he just said there is they're using true robotics to emulate human motion in cooking food. That's right, robotics, and that sound you hear is the robotic machine as he demos it to me over the internet. Don't worry about the noise; it'll go away pretty soon.
4: So here, we're literally taking a dollar to two dollars worth of ingredients. Like this is sauteed lamb; it's about a quarter pound of lamb, which is about a dollar thirty, a dollar forty. Um, uh, macerated cherries, sauteed pine nuts, and olive oil about $2.30 of ingredients total. Typically, if you get this in a restaurant uh, with, with a celebrity chef who made it for or made the recipe for us, it's a $25 plate. So now you can have it for probably 400% markup. So that's eight bucks instead of $2.30. And we make a hefty profit margin off of it.
0: All right. So Tim's talking a little bit about his business model, but the big idea here is using machines or robotics to make meals that taste like a chef cook them. Something that, quite frankly, sounds a little bit scary, and something that chefs—people who have spent their whole lives learning how to cook to make food as art—would probably find somewhat ridiculous. I have to ask you, though. I mean, I, I think the idea is cool, but I, I can imagine the rebellion among the kind of the chef class saying, yeah. "You can't." I mean, the machines are taking over. Like, we all have to resign to the fact like they're going to take over. But yeah. right. <laughs> are they going to take over the cooking too?
4: No, you know, it's actually going to make them a hell of a lot more money than they've ever had before. Right now, chefs are struggling to make ends meet. You know, that's just a basic fact. You come out of cooking school, you do grunt work, you know, for, for close to 10 years before you get your first restaurant, correct? So what this does is it gives them a platform to leverage their abilities. You know, we compared this to iTunes and iPods because if you think about what happened in the music industry, remember the late 90s, early 2000s? Content and delivery really came. It went from being the individual record labels like Motown and Jive into bigger labels that really did content delivery and streamlined music, right? You, went, you had Virgin EMI, BMG. You had uh, 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 Columbia House. Getham was even absorbed by them, right? So then this thing came. I don't know if you can see me right now, but I'm holding uh, the, my, my, my uh, iPhone, where actually back then it was just an iPod. It was an iPod and iTunes, took all the content delivery, and executed it. Professionally, same thing is happening in food right now. We truly believe that all these players like Blue Apron, Plated, you know, and probably about a hundred something coffee cats out there, that are all getting like multiple hundred millions in terms of the billion dollar revaluations. What they're doing is content delivery because food used to be a vertical industry where they had, you know, one guy doing chicken for the entire Eastern US and then one guy doing tomatoes, one guy doing cheese and so forth and so on. You know, it was an individual industry. Now, all this commissaries and co-packing has made it a horizontal industry, and here's the content delivery. What we serve to be is the iPod and iTunes of food enabled by curie ecosystem, where when we grow in the future, when we get to a size that we need to get to, eventually, you don't have to worry about exactly where your food is coming from. You say, I want this ingredient in this amount, that ingredient in this amount, you want two ounces of cheese, five ounces of tomatoes, and three ounces of chicken for each chicken pomodoro, it'll be who can fulfill that. Can Blue Apron fulfill it? Can Sprig? Can somebody else do it? Or they can actually get you their recipes that they like. So Mario Batali can socialize his recipes out. And every, you know, every time he does, somebody says, oh, my God, I want that for dinner. So all they have to do is touch one button, get those ingredients delivered to you. And within those those five seconds, Mario Batali could have sold 50,000, 500,000 meals for that night and monetized every one of them.
0: All right, so let me try to unpack this. Basically, Tim is comparing the creation and art of food to that of creating music. A much like artists used to struggle before iTunes and before digital distribution to find an audience. Nowadays, they can do that through the internet. And according to Tim, soon chefs can do the same thing by creating recipes, creating creations that are their own individual art and finding an audience through the internet and using his robotic cooker to then mix those ingredients exactly as they would. Or, well, close to it. Okay, so like you, I'm struggling a little bit with this comparison. I think it's interesting, and I think the idea of distributing recipes over the internet has some real merit to it. And, okay, so maybe budding chefs can become like musicians and distribute their artwork or their recipes over the internet. But I'm not exactly sure food robots will be exactly similar to iPhones and become as widely popular. And I don't think Tim necessarily means that, but he does make the comparison. I think it's an interesting one, just one that's, well, possibly a little bit too futuristic to envision at this point. Perhaps a better explanation is one that Tim gave me in our first phone call, where he described his food robot as something similar to a Keurig, where you take pre-measured food pods and mix them all together. Now, I have to say, in the food tech space, particularly in the connected kitchen, a lot of people use this Keurig comparison. It's perhaps because Keurig has been so widely successful and is an example of new technology completely recreating the way people do something that they've been doing the same way for a long time. Okay, you're saying, but where does that leave us? If cookbooks are becoming antiques and collectibles, if tablet apps become messy when you put your fingers on them, or as Chris from ChefSteps says, probably not the best way to teach yourself to cook, how do you learn how to cook? Well, maybe YouTube is a good place to start. Maybe ChefSteps is a good place to start with their videos. But maybe, just maybe, we can all go back to where we started and ask mom to give us a little bit of help. Market Show is written and edited by me, Michael Wolfe, brought to you by Technology.fm, Next Market Insights, and the Smart Kitchen Summit. Special thanks to Kevin Yu of SideChef, Chris Young of Chef Steps, and Timothy Chen of Serenity Kitchen. The closing credit music for today's podcast is created by Paul Tyan, used under a Creative Common license. You can now find the Smart Kitchen Show on iTunes, or just go to smartkitchensummit.com backslash show. No yeah, I have one more person to thank how do you how do you cook steak mom do you do you barbecue on,
1: on the george foreman grill
0: on the george foreman grill yeah
1: and it's good it's good
0: is that how you cook all your steaks now
1: yes we don't have a, we barbecue. I didn't have a barbecue anymore the it last died. one died and your mom didn't want to get another one yeah so i love the george foreman i love it thanks mom